0: well howdy there folks it's me heather back with another episode of strike vote my novel which i am podcasting as an audiobook on substack today is january 19th 2022 if you're new here i do encourage you to go back and listen from the top uh you'll find the links to my uh, episodes on my twitter and facebook and also, you can subscribe to my Substack for free if you'd like to listen to it. All right, with that, I will get started. I'm going to be breaking chapter eight into two sections because it is a large chapter. And with that, I'll get started on part one of chapter eight Cochrane. Having dealt with Preston's body and paying off the genius, after what felt like forever, Cochran finally had the chance to retreat into his private lounge, which was all that he'd been wanting to do since Anderson made his presentation. He was bursting with an atavistic energy, and he needed time to think. He unlocked the door of the suite, a luxury apartment that he stayed in from time to time when he was in Toronto, and went inside. Throwing his keys on the tray by the door, he crossed to the window and stared out. He loosened his tie and allowed himself a moment to reflect on the information that had been contained in the slideshow. There would be catastrophic damage. It was inevitable, but he was pretty sure he had a way that he could capitalize on it, possibly in a way that would give him almost total control. He had been waiting for something like this to unfold, and a ripple of anticipation went through him at the thought that this could be his moment. He needed time to think to work through the many possible outcomes, but something in him told him this was it. He had a plan that he'd been working on for quite some time, and this was his chance. Operation Resolute, it was called, and what it was, in all reality, was slavery. There was a compound he had built in a very remote corner of northern Ontario, something like a concentration camp, It was built above a cobalt deposit, far beneath the rocky ground, out in the Crown Forest, in no man's land. Because the deposit was in Canada, the idea of paying Canadian workers' wages to extract the valuable material was cost-prohibitive. He built the compound anyway above the cobalt stores, with the idea of one day importing foreign workers to extract it but the information he had learned today from Anderson's slideshow made another option possible. Evacuate the area of southwestern Ontario, Anderson had said. That would mean that there would be displaced people who had nowhere to go. What if he could fix that? The compound he had built had barracks enough to hold 10,000 people, and if he filled it, he could easily use that first 10,000 souls to build more barracks. If that happened, he would essentially have a labor camp where he could mine the cobalt and also the slave labor to build whatever he wanted. He turned the idea over, evaluating it in his mind. He had been acting on instinct when he built the Resolute Compound, knowing he would use it eventually, because his ultimate goal was to use it as a prototype that could be marketed the world over and used to enslave even greater populations. But it was there and it was ready and it was costing him money every day that it sat idle. Plus there was all that cobalt underground, one of the world's most sought after minerals due to its use in electronics. He saw now that what he needed was a disaster like the one that was unfolding, one that he could capitalize on to put his plan in motion He knew that it was possible, but how? He could call Prime Minister Wall, have him order the evacuation, but then what? How could he coerce free citizens to agree to get on board his buses and go to the encampment? The place was outfitted with an electronic barrier system. Essentially, it was a wireless perimeter that worked in partnership with minuscule nanobots injected into the bodies of the prisoners. Once injected into the human body, they lodged in the prisoner's brain so that if a prisoner attempted to cross the magnetic perimeter, it would set off a neurological response within them that would render them immobilized. They didn't know exactly what else the injection could do, but what they did know was that it would keep the human being still and spasming for long enough that the guards could easily return them to confinement. The nanobots set off a neurological response of seizure, one that was exceptionally terrifying to behold, and the goal of this tactic was disincentivizing other prisoners from risking escape themselves. Part of the process was transporting the seizing prisoner, drooling and spasming through corridors where other prisoners would see the outcome of attempted escape and the resulting long-term catatonia that ensued but how to make them take the injection? That was the question. Slowly, a plan began to take shape in his mind. He could tell Prime Minister Wall to call a press conference and order the evacuation. Cochrane could offer to pay for buses to pick people up at checkpoints. The story that would be told was that the checkpoints were a safe haven where they would be protected from the flooding and the subsidence, Granted, many people would flee in cars, head into the States, take off, but there were a lot of people living in the downtown cores of the evac zone who didn't have access to a personal vehicle, and for them there was no way out. There were plenty enough of those people to fill up the barracks at the Resolute. What if he made it mandatory that they took the injection before getting on the bus to the safety zone? Cochran smirked at this. He couldn't help it. He made the decision that he would call it that, and every time he heard it on the news, he knew that it would give him a tiny thrill of enjoyment inside, a purely private joke he could share with himself. The inklings of a plan were taking shape. Wall would call a presser and go on camera to order the evacuation, telling people that the area that they were standing on wasn't safe flag would swoop in like the humanitarian charity they were and offer free bus shuttles to the safety zone conditional to government assistance after the disaster and conditional to entry to the shuttle bus would be the requirement of taking the injection which would contain the microchip but what would he tell them the injections were to make them compliant he thought for a minute going back to Anderson's slide deck and the answer hit on him like a, well, you might say like an explosion, like a mushroom cloud, perhaps. He, he would tell the people that the injection was to provide immunity for radiation poisoning. If he made the messaging strong enough on the nuclear reaction, made it seem like that was the thing to be feared above all else, people would think that it was in their best interest to take the needle. A slow smile spread on Cochrane's face lighting up his eyes with a glint that was unholy. He needed a little more time to think. He left the window and crossed to his personal wet bar and poured himself a drink, then sat down in his top-of-the-line leather armchair. He dimmed the lights, then turned on the TV news broadcast from CBC. A helicopter hovering over the Wyerton area was filming aerial footage of the fault line. Smoke plume stretched across the Bruce Peninsula from the east side all the way over to the nuclear plant. The peninsula itself was starting to look like Frankenstein's thumb, bent and broken and stitched back on. Cochrane sat in his armchair and surveyed that damage, and the thought that went through his mind was, This is it. This is my moment. My resolute. He took a sip of bourbon and a slow, cold smile lit up his eyes with an unholy gleam. So the bruise was beginning to separate. Good. The little shit had been right, and if it was, then it wouldn't be long until the whole thing fell. And what that means is that it's time for me to put my plan in motion, he thought. He pointed the remote to mute the sound, cutting off Jim Olofsson, giving his account of the morning's events mid-sentence, then dialed his pilot. Have my Black hawk ready. I want it loaded on the helipad. I'm taking off soon. There was another call he had to make. He found the name in his contact list, Wall. He hit the call button, then listened as a series of clicks and buzzes connected him to the red phone that sat on the Prime Minister's desk through a top-secret number, that only he and a handful of very privileged others had access to. He didn't wait long before the red phone was picked up. He smirked to himself. He never usually did have to wait very long for the red phone to get picked up, and that thought still gave him the ghost of a thrill, even after all of these years. On the other end, a moment's hesitation. This is Prime Minister Wall. Cochrane smirked. No matter how rich he got, how powerful, having the world's leaders at his beck and call was still a feeling that he relished. He let the Prime Minister hang for a moment. He must be shitting bricks right now, he thought. Wall would be watching the news. He would have figured out that what had caused the damage was the fracking, because he'd known about it all along. It had been Cochrane who had emplaced Wall in the seat of Prime Minister And once there, Wall had been paid extremely well by Eric Cochran to grease the wheels. For Wall to have let on that he knew about the shady covert ops fracking that was happening right underneath the public's nose would have been political suicide. Yet, with the multiple calamities that were occurring that day, sinkholes and smoke plumes such as the ones that Cochran was looking at on CBC, aides and officials would have been coming to Wall all morning. They would want to be told what to do, but until he'd heard the word from Cochrane, there'd have been nothing Wall could say. That was because Wall didn't call the shots. Cochrane did. Wall was just the puppet, and the puppet couldn't speak without the words being put into his mouth by the man who pulled his strings. After leaving him hanging for a suitable interval, Cochran's smirk turned grim. "'Looks like we've got a situation.' He said to the Prime Minister calmly. The man exploded. Jesus fucking Christ, Cochrane, this is more than just a situation. This is a fucking train wreck. You said there wouldn't be damage. You said the fracking sites were perfectly safe. You told me that. You said so. Cochrane rolled his eyes. Wall was carrying on like a soaking kid, and nothing was more off putting. I lied, he said. Thunderstruck silence on the other end. One wall spoke next. It was in a whisper. You, what? Cochrane took a drink. He could picture Wall there in his office, an aging white gentleman sitting behind his ridiculously large mahogany desk, his famous handsome face flushed and red and apoplectic. Cochran had always thought that desk made Wall look puny and insignificant, which in Cochran's mind, Wall was. Still, he needed Wall to do his part, to go before the cameras and stick handle the PR. Better rein it in a bit, he told himself. He couldn't afford for Wall to blow an aneurysm and be rendered useless, especially not right now when Resolute might be on the table. Don't tell him the plan yet not entirely. Only tell him enough to make him set the stage. The thought went through Cochrane's mind and he listened to it. He always listened to his instincts. Look, my people are handling this, okay? Just tell the press the computers are down at the seismic monitoring center. Interference caused by all the quakes. Tell them we're worried about a nuclear explosion. Focus on the power plant, Tell people it's not clear right now what's going on, but that radiation poisoning is your primary concern. Tell them you'll know more once your people get their systems back online. It had been a stroke of genius for Anderson to have his geek squad dismantle the computer systems at the government seismic monitoring center. Cochrane would give him that. It would buy them the time that they needed to withdraw from the region. Well, all except for Wall, that was wall would have to stay behind and hold the bag wall was silent for a moment radiation poisoning he said is that really your concern right now the fuck you care what my concern is cochran spat this out you do what i tell you remember and right now i'm telling you to say that so you fucking say it fine i'll fucking say it jesus cochran take it easy cochran's smirk was back i'll be in touch Cochran disconnected. He was just about to put the phone down when it buzzed in his hand. He frowned, looking at the call display. Doucette. Cochran lit a cigar, letting the phone ring while he took a deep haul. Then he grated out a one-word greeting to Doucette on a a cloud of cherry-brandy-flavored smoke. What? Doucette mumbled something unintelligible, and Cochran snapped. God damn it, Doucette, get the goddamn marbles out of your mouth. If you've got a fucking problem, spit it out. I don't have all day here. What? Cochran held the phone away from his face and stared at it. It sounded like Doucette had just told him to shut up. In his Range Rover, out behind the municipal building, Doucette spoke slowly, wincing with the pain it caused his injured mouth. The Jennings bitch fucked up. He said the words as clearly as he could. Cynthia, she leaked the slideshow from this morning. It's on the internet. He told Cochrane what had happened right up to the moment he was clubbed. Cochrane turned this over. So the slideshow had been leaked. This was good. This was actually very good for Resolute. It was almost eloquently perfect, actually. Better that the leak came from a whistleblower. That would give it more credibility to the people in the downtown cores, the future residents of Resolute. He concluded that what Doucette was telling him might serve the Resolute narrative quite well. He would keep it going. He trusted Doucette, but Resolute was Cochran's baby, and he wasn't ready to share it quite yet. Better to let Doucette think that he still wanted the information kept contained. So you're there, outside the building? Remind me again why this Walters bitch is still alive? Some motherfucker clubbed me, took my gun and my car keys. I need a weapon, then I'll make her pay. Her and the fucking cowboy in there with her. Damn it, Doucette, Mount Bridges is an hour away. You've got to get this thing offline now. Fallon's on his way here. He said he's going to his plant, remember? He's got his Glock. He told me that this morning. Call him and tell him I need it. Tell him to bring it to me. Cochran vented twin blue pyramids of smoke from his nose. What's your location? He wrote it on a cocktail napkin. Okay, I'm sending Fallon. And then you make her pay. Cochran jotted down the fox's information, then hung up. He called Fallon and relayed the message, then leaned back in his armchair, thinking... A dangerous expression on his face. Cynthia Jennings had let the slideshow slip, and now this small town whistle blowing whore had put it on the internet. Both of those things served the Resolute agenda, or at least they had the potential to. The question was did he dare to actually do this? Did he dare to enact Resolute after all this time? Was this his chance to fill his barracks, enslave his own workforce? He was starting to believe that it was. A thrill of excitement went through him. The thought occurred to him to wonder if Preston's whores were still in the building. He'd paid those broads to suck some cock, he realized, and so far they hadn't delivered. When there was money involved, money that he had laid out there, Eric Cochran was a man that made sure whatever was promised in exchange for his money was delivered. He picked up his intercom and called the genius. Have those hookers join me in my chambers. He hung up, tented his fingers in front of his face, and continued to think. Lawrence Fowling cut across two lanes of traffic and veered onto the off ramp for Highway 81 without signaling. He was high as a kite. Moments earlier, he'd been riding a buoyant sensation as he flew down the highway, ready to do his bit for Flag, storm into his plant and take the place by the balls, putting on the charm in a PR show the likes of which the place had never seen. That had been before the call from Eric Cochran. Fuck! Fallon slammed the heel of his hand into the steering wheel. The custom thrust chittered out a squawk from its horn, and Fallon rolled his eyes. First, there had been the call from Walter Jennings, wanting him to work his connections in Mount Bridges, keep the cops away from the municipal offices. That had been fine. That had been no problem. He had half a dozen local lawmakers on his payroll, one phone call to the ousted Mayor Moody, and he had taken care of that. Moody had welcomed the opportunity to take care of that, in fact. Fallon had gotten the sense that Moody and his ring of cohorts had been praying that someone would happen to the new mayor. From what Fallon had been told, she'd been playing hardball with them, which made it hard for them to earn their keep from Fallon. He also understood that Doucette was in trouble. Hell, if they didn't get the broadcast off the internet, they were all in trouble, himself included, because the trail of shit led back to him. If the goddamn video started trending, it would catch up to Fallon for sure. That was why he wanted to get to his plant, do his PR, and take off down to Brazil, safely outside of the evac zone and into a place where he could hide out in relative anonymity. That was why the thing with Doucette was more than just an inconvenience. On top of Fallon's guac, Doucette would want his cocaine. Fallon was sure of it. Doucette was higher up the food chain at Flag, so Fallon would have to give it to him, which meant that Fallon himself would be left without. Then again, there was always lots of quality cocaine to be had in Brazil. Let Jacinta find him some, he thought. Let her earn her fancy setup for a change, the one that he provided her with. Fallon smiled in an unlovely way. He slowed for the turn onto Hickory. He could see the smokestacks of his plant in the distance, billowing their jolly and toxic perfume. It was a sight that never failed to please him. He pulled onto the shoulder and took another hit of his cocaine, and then another one after that for good measure. Can't share what you don't have, he thought, and cackled to himself. There, Doucette could have the rest. Fallon had a right good glow going now, enough to get him through the press op anyway. Maybe Jacinta would have some when he picked her up. He made the turn that would take him to the municipal building. He hadn't needed Cochran to tell him the address. He knew where it was. He'd been there a few times during Mayor Moody's time in office to give the man the money that it took to grease the wheels. As the squat gray structure drew closer, he thought, lots of action happening at this place today. First the call from Jennings, wanting the cops to stay away. So Fallon had done that much for the team and now he would bail out Doucette. Between the two, this day might just call him some favor with Eric Cochran. That was always a good thing, Fallon nodded, considering. Getting higher up in Cochran's good books would be all right, especially now if the thrust business was unspooling, but he hated to give up his gun. Strapping on the Glock made him feel pretty badass most of the time, he liked to get drunk and high with Jacinta and toss fancy imported beer bottles off his bedroom veranda, shoot the fuck out of them before they hit the ground of his travertine courtyard two floors down. Truth be told, he very rarely ever actually hit them, but it was still a pretty kick-ass way to spend an evening. As he cruised up the road leading to the municipal building, his eyes softened. He would miss that old glock, but there was no question of disobeying Cochrane, and besides, It would keep him in the big man's good graces. Cochran was just as guilty as Fallon in the whole fracking thing, but shit still flowed downhill. After all, better to come off looking like a team player. Cochran had told him to look for DeSette in the back alley. Fallon rolled into the parking lot of the municipal building and headed down the lane marked deliveries only. He was really, really high. His focus narrowed to a tiny pinpoint that swerved from side to side, finally honing like a flashlight beam onto the small margin of glossy black automotive paint that showed above the dumpster. Doucette's Range Rover, he thought, bingo. He allowed himself a small smirk of self-satisfaction. Looked like Cochrane's right-hand man had landed himself in a bit of a fix. Luckily, here came Fallon, riding in on a white horse to save the day. White horse, ha, he chortled, chortled inwardly. Wasn't that the truth? Cochran was going to be so pleased. He was so busy imagining the rewards that would come with Cochran's good opinion that he had failed to notice the brightly painted foul thrust parked in the front parking lot of the building, the one that bore the auto workers' union insignia, the one that clearly indicated someone from his plant was in the building someone who would recognize him and his custom thrust. All right, guys, so I'm going to leave it there for today. Uh, I hope you guys are doing okay wherever you are. I hope you're staying positive and staying happy and trying to find uh, some joy in life. And with that, I'll leave it there, and I'll be back tomorrow with another episode of Strike Vote. We'll do the second half. Of chapter eight. Have a good night, everyone. Take care.